Bismillah, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, Elhamdülillahi Rabbil Alemin, ve sallallahu ve sellem ve baraka ala seyyidina ve mevlana Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Allahümme allimna ma yenfe'una ve anfe'na bima allemtena ve zidna min fadrika ilmen ve ta'liman ve fiqhan ve amelen biddin ya Rabbil Alemin. Alhamdulillah, this is lesson 4 in module 5 on the fiqh of salat. And we have so far been looking at all the things that need to be in place before we begin the salat. So in module 4, we were talking about tahara, purification, because that is required, that is a, a shart, a condition for salat. After you have wudu, you have to wait for the salat time to enter before you can pray it. If you have wudu, but it's not dhuhr time, you can't pray dhuhr. You have to wait for the dukhul al-waqt, the entrance of the time. And once the time has come in, it is highly recommended for people to call the adhan and to call the iqama, the call to prayer and the call to the commencement of the prayer. And before you begin that salat, there are other things you have to make sure of. And we talked about one of them last week, among the conditions of the prayer. We talked about the covering of the awrah, the awrah in the prayer. So that's what we've learned so far. And tonight, inshallah, we're gonna cover the conditions of the prayer and the pillars of the prayer. Now, these are two terms, condition and pillar. What is the difference between a condition and a pillar? Well, a condition is something that's external to the prayer. Is wudu inside of salat something that you're doing? No. But you have to have wudu before you can pray. Now, Reciting the Qur'an, is that something you're doing inside of the salat? Yes. So the pillar of the prayer is something that is inside of the salat, while the condition is something external to the salat. So you have to have both of these in place for the prayer to be valid. So we mentioned some of these in module 4, among the conditions of salat. The condition is external, we said. If you have it, you may not have the thing conditioned. If you have wudu, it doesn't mean you've prayed. But if your prayer is valid, it means you had wudu. So the conditions for salah to be valid include being in a state of ritual purity from both minor and major impurity. And that's what we covered in module four. Another condition for the validity of salat is to be free of any physical filth on one's garments, body and place of prayer, meaning where the limbs will touch when you're in prayer. So that's your feet, your hands, your knees, your face, or your forehead and nose. Now when we say physical filth, do we mean dirt? No. What do we mean? Najasa. So we mean the, the legal category called najasa, or things that are uh, ritually impure, right? So being free of physical filth, najasa, on your clothing, your body, or your place of prayer. And we clarified last week that by place of prayer, 
Does it mean the entire prayer rug that you're praying on has to be pure? No. How much of it has to be pure? Exactly. The space that you touch, the, where, where your body is in contact with the ground. Uh, if you think about it, it just makes sense because you can pray outdoors. Even if there's animal filth here and there in different directions, as long as the area you're in is free of filth, that's fine. Another condition for the validity of salat is covering the awrah. And we covered that last week. What is the bare minimum awrah for men in the Hanafi school? So we say navel to the knee. And in the Hanafi school, navel here means right below the navel. It doesn't include the navel itself. And when we say knee, we mean at the bottom of the knee. So this is the awrah, the bare minimum. Does that mean that a man should be praying without a shirt? Absolutely not. But you, you see here that we look at the bare minimum and then we build on that. Okay. What is the awrah of the woman? Right. So everything but the face, hands and feet. And here face is being described as basically the, uh, so vertically and then horizontally. And the hands and then the feet. And the feet, this is the Hanafi position. Um, it is more cautious to cover the feet. Um, but generally there's agreement that the bottom of the feet are not included in any of that. So these are the conditions that we've covered so far. Two of these we covered in module four in the section on tahara. Last week we covered the issue of the awrah and tonight inshallah we cover four through seven and then the pillars of the prayer. Those things that you have to have inside of the prayer. So the first of these uh, from tonight is number four, istiqbal al-qibla, facing the qibla. It is a condition of the salat to face the qibla. So let's say you are about to pray, you have wudu, and you start facing the qibla. Are you in prayer just because you're facing the qibla? No, you haven't started yet. It's an external condition that you face the qibla before you begin. That's why it's a condition as it's external to the salat itself. You have to find the qibla and you have to face it. Now, the qibla we know is towards the Kaaba. It wasn't always that way. There was a time in our history when the Qibla was towards Baytul Maqdis and then it was changed. And when we define the Qibla, so Qibla is from Qaf, Ba, Lam, which means that thing to which you direct yourself or turn yourself, right? Now the, the definition of the Qibla that I really like is the definition of one of my teachers where he says it is the direction of prayer that was pleasing to the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and that Allah gave to His Beloved Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So it is basically that the direction to which Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam turned as the Qibla which he was pleased with. Where does that come from? It comes from Surah Al-Baqarah. Because Allah Ta'ala says in the Qur'an, in Surah Al-Baqarah, the second chapter of the Qur'an, 
قد نرى تقلب وجهك في السماء فلنولينك قبلة ترضاها We certainly see you turning your gazes, your face towards the heavens and we shall turn you towards a qibla that you will be pleased with. So if it's only because it is the direction that Rasulullah was pleased with that it became the qibla. If he was pleased with another direction, the other place would have been our qibla. That's the connection. So that's a basic condition. Now anyone who lives in Mecca, who can see the Kaaba, has a higher standard when it comes to facing the Qibla. If they can see the Kaaba, they have to face it directly. And a person who cannot see it would face its direction. Some of the ulama call this Al-Qiblatu Al-Ainiyah or the, the immediate Qibla that's discernible to the eyes and the other one Qibla Dhaniya in the sense that there's some distance so you're just in the general direction now the closer you get to the Kaaba the more room there is the less room there is for error because if you look at the cube shape structure of the Kaaba it's conceivable that a person could be outside making tawaf and as they face it to pray they could actually be facing slightly away from it so if you drew a straight line from their chest all the way out, it would actually slightly go past the Kaaba, right? But if you're really far away, that, that standard of exactitude is not required. It is sufficient for you to face the general direction. What is the general direction of the Qibla for us in North America? Northeast. So as long as you get northeast, even if you're off by a couple of degrees, it's absolutely fine because we're so far away. And there's no harm. If, you're, if you can't see the Kaaba, you're not obliged to face it exactly. If you have the general northeast direction and you determine that it, it, as the northeast and this is the Qibla and someone comes to you and says, oh no, actually it needs to be like this much further. It, it's not going to affect the validity of your prayer if you continue here instead of right here. That slight difference is not affecting the validity of your prayer. And the reason why we don't have to be so exact is because the further away you get, it's inevitable that you will not be able to face it exactly. Think about it. Are we talking about millimeters in exactitude? We have to be that exact? No. Uh, likewise in the Quran, Allah does not require this. He simply requires that you face the shatara, you know, you, you face it in the general sense, the direction in general. If it was required for us to face it with that level of exactness, it would be haraj, it would be difficult, a difficulty for the ummah, uh, and it would be uh, something difficult, and, and that is al haraj marfur, it's raised. So if you face the northeast in general, you're good to go. Now, if you Let's say you have a, the Qibla compass and you, have, you know how you put the phone down, you wind it around and you put it down and you see it, the arrow pointing. If it's pointing, say, this way and, you, and that's as exact as it can get from North America and you prayed a degree to the right or to the left, your prayer is still valid. 
However, it is superior to be as exact as you can according to that direction. It's not a condition for your prayer to be valid, but it's better to do so. So if you know that your Qibla app is accurate, and you know, or you know how to determine it from the position of the sun or other means, try to be as exact as you can. But if it's slightly off, it's, it's not going to affect the validity of the prayer. Um, what about a person who is unable to do that? Let's imagine a person who is sick, they're bedridden, and let's say they're at home alone, and there's no one there to help them and turn them towards the Qibla, and they can't even move towards the Qibla, and it's time for prayer. What do they do? Do they skip their prayer? No, you never skip the prayer. In this case, they pray in whatever direction they are in because they don't have the ability to move their body in the direction of the Qibla. So let us say your phone died. You're out and your phone dies and it's time for Salat and you want to figure out where the Qibla is. What do you do? How will you determine the Qibla? You can use the position of the sun and basically you're looking at that, seeing the cardinal directions and establishing from the cardinal direction where the northeast is going to be. So, you know, if the sun is here and it's morning time, that's, e that's east. Okay, here's east. So then on the other side is west. Now you establish your north and your south. You can figure it out that way. Another way the scholars say is to uh, look at the mihrab of the masjid especially if it's an old masjid that's been around for a very long time in the ancient Muslim lands. So the, um, you know, the Maharib al-Ansar, Maharib al-Amsar, the, the, the mihrabs that were established in the old masjid that were built you know, a millennia ago, if not more, these tend to be very, very reliable. And you can use the other maharib as well to determine your qibla. Uh, if you don't find a mihrab and let's say it's a cloudy day, you can also ask a Muslim in the area who might know as long as they're trustworthy. If they have adala, they're basically upright. You can ask them the, where the qibla is located. But let's say your, phone is, your phone's dead. You're not around a masjid to look at a mihrab and there's no Muslims around and it's so cloudy. There's no way you can determine where the qibla is. Uh, in North America, there is another way, uh, it's, but it's not so easy to pull off. It's looking at the side of the trees on which moss grows, because that can tell you where the north is, and from there you can figure it out. But let's say there's no trees either. What do you do? If you cannot determine the Qibla through observing the sun or a tool or any other means, your job as a Muslim is to do your very best, your ijtihad, to determine it. This may be, of course, this is going to involve some speculation. It could be you're looking at the time of the day and you're looking for anywhere in that cloudy sky where there might be some brightness relative to other darker clouds. And you think, well, maybe that's where the sun is positioned. And you try to guess based on this. You, you do your best effort to find out what the qibla is. 
If you do that, that's all that's required. So let's say you do that. You pray in this direction, based on your ijtihad. And then 20 minutes later, the clouds break up. And you realize that it wasn't actually towards the qibla that you prayed. Do you have to pray over again? No. No. Because you did your level best. You did your ijtihad. And this is what your ijtihad led you to. And that is sufficient. This is an important principle. That when you strive to determine the qibla in the absence of any other sign. You just try your best. That for you is enough. And you, once you've done that, you actually can't rely on the ijtihad of another person. So let's say you make that ijtihad and you think it's this direction. And then someone else says, no, I think it's this direction. If you begin praying in the direction that your ijtihad led you to, to think it's the qibla, and then you, you, know, you catch this person praying this direction, and you think, hmm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow this guy going this direction. Uh, no. It's invalid because you're not following your ijtihad. You have to follow yours over his, assuming he doesn't know either. This actually happens, right? I've seen this happen in airports, especially when they're in JFK. You'll see this a lot. In JFK, you often find lots of Muslims congregating because they're boarding flights to go for Hajj and Umrah. Uh, and sometimes as they're in the, depending on where they are in the airport, it's time for salah and they want to pray before they board the plane and they're looking for determining the qibla. Have you ever used the app and the qibla says here and then someone else has their app and it says over here? What do you do? Fight. Well, hmm? Fight. Fight? Uh, argue? Yeah. That's, that's what some would do, yeah. Well, I would, yeah, I would suggest looking at doing it a few times with your own and looking at other people and checking theirs and, and you know three four five people looking to see what they determine uh, um, also looking outside you know it's new york city you can see the city you could determine from there more or less the direction but these things happen and you'll see very often at jfk a group of muslims praying over here in this direction and then some other people come and they're praying in this direction now, if you're in this group and this is what your ijtihad led you to, but you see these people doing this in another direction, well, you actually, you, you may be wrong and they may be right, but in the absence of tools, you just continue, right? So, this is in the next slide. Uh, if a person realizes during prayer that they're facing the wrong direction, they should turn towards the Kaaba while in prayer. So maybe it becomes clear. So you're praying and it's a cloudy day. You, you thought the Qibla is this direction. As, the, as the, the clouds clear and the sun comes out, you realize the Qibla is over here. You don't have to break your Salat. All you need to do is turn yourself in that direction. Is that extra movement? Yes. But it is for rectifying the prayer. You know, if you're doing extra movement, we'll learn later on, from the mufsidatul salat, those things that uh, uh, violate or break the prayer, that invalidate it, excess movement can do that. But in this case, although it's a good amount of movement, it is for fixing the prayer. Uh, if a person makes their best attempt to determine the direction of the qibla and settles on a particular direction, but then leaves it for another direction, 
their prayer is invalid even if after the prayer they learn that the second direction was the correct one. This is back to the airport example. That is because the obligation is for one to pray in the direction that their ijtihad determined to be correct. All right? There are situations where you make ijtihad and you're wrong and then some yaqeen, some certainty comes to you. When the certainty is there, you go for the certainty. But we're talking about when things are just ambiguous. Uh, so you try your best and once you've made your best effort, you stick with it. Okay. How many of you have struggled with praying salat on airplanes? It's one of those things, isn't it? So you have two challenges there. Challenge number one is the qibla. Challenge number two is do you pray in your seat or do you pray in some other area? And if you're supposed to do that, which you are supposed to do that, how do you pull that off? It depends on the airline, doesn't it? Uh, but we're looking at the qibla issue. Now, if you're praying on a plane or a ship, you have to face the qibla just as you would if you're on land. But once you've determined the qibla, and this is usually when you see the, the plane route on that screen, where you can see the plane and its position on the globe, once you've determined, okay, well, the sun is here and this is the direction, here's the qibla, I'm going to turn this way. If the plane starts turning away from the qibla, you don't have to move with that change. You just keep praying in the same direction you began the prayer with. So although the plane has moved away from the Qibla direction when you started, you maintain that same position. You don't have to shift as the plane is shifting. This applies to a plane or a ship. Um, and, and that's it for the Qibla. Uh, it's not that hard for us in this day and age, but it does become hard when you're phones die or when it's a cloudy day uh, in which case you can also use the layout of a city you can look at the general direction okay the, the highway 76 east 76 west you know these general directions can help determine where the qibla would be to the northeast so once you've established you have wudu the awrah is covered you've determined the qibla you're ready to pray What's next? What do you do? You just start the prayer, right? Ah, you have to have the intention. You have to have the intention before you can begin the prayer. So the niyyah is the next condition of the prayer being valid. You have to have a niyyah. Now, what exactly is a niyyah? Now, the niyyah is a firm resolve in the mind. And the purpose of the niyyah is to distinguish one act of worship from another. We think of the word niya as the intention that what we're doing is for the sake of Allah. Of course, that is a part of the niya. But the niya is also the determination uh, and the decision of the heart and mind to initiate an action to be specific, whereby you're distinguishing this thing, this act of worship, from another act of worship. And you'll see this, the importance of this, when you deal with children. You go to your child, your young child, you say, go pray salat. It's dhuhr time. You say, go pray salat. And they go, they make wudu, you check their elbows, then they go and pray salat. 
And then you say, what did you pray? And they say, Salat. <laughs> I just prayed. You told me to pray. They don't know if it's Dhuhr or Asr, right? Young children. They just, they just prayed. Now they're lacking the niya that distinguishes this prayer from the other. So when the person is praying Dhuhr, they have to have the intention that it's Dhuhr, to distinguish Dhuhr from Asr. And they have to intend that though this is the obligation, the fardl. It's not a sunnah prayer that I'm praying. It's not voluntary. And they have to distinguish the it being a current prayer that's current right now or a makeup prayer some, from something missed, a prayer that was missed in the past. So the minimum of the valid niyyah is such that if a person were asked about it, they would be able to respond without having to think about it. This is the person who, if they prayed it and you said, what did you pray? They just say, Dhuhr. But if you ask them, they're praying, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. You say, what did you pray? And they go, hmm, hmm, gee. Dhuhr, uh, right? That means the niyyah was not firm enough to distinguish that prayer from other prayers. But for most people, obviously, if, if you ask them, what did you just pray? They say, Dhuhr or Asr or whatever. So that's the minimum. Now, when you make the intention for a fard or a wajib prayer, you have to also specify which prayer is about to be performed. So you need to make sure, and this is all in the heart, it doesn't have to be said. Well, they can be, but it doesn't have to be. In, in the heart, you know, this is dhuhr, the current, not a makeup from the past. It is the current dhuhr. I am praying for the sake of Allah Ta'ala. You don't need to make that specification when you're praying sunnah prayers. So when you are praying a sunnah prayer, you don't need that specificity because it's not required. You don't need that for tarawih or any general voluntary prayer. But you do for the fard and the wajib. So the five salawat and the witr. Now, if you're coming to the masjid or if you're just praying in a jama'ah, a congregation, you also have to intend that you are uh, praying behind an imam. Because uh, we have two states in prayer. Uh, we're either munfarid or we're either praying by ourselves, or three actually. You're either munfarid praying by yourself, or you are the imam, or you are the one praying behind an imam. So you need to have that in your intention as well. Why? Because it's an obligation for you to follow the imam. You can't do things ahead of the imam. And by clarifying that intention that you're praying behind the imam, the rules change. The rules of salat change specifically in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa because when you're praying behind the Imam you're not reading Al-Fatiha right? but if you're praying by yourself you are so you have to have that, that, that clarity in mind um, it is valid and some of the fuqaha say it's even preferable to do uh, this talafuz bin-niyyah this uttering of the intention to oneself uh, and this is preferable uh, particularly if a person finds they get confused or they're scatterbrained. It's good to say it. But 
the locus, the source of the niya is in the heart, and the verbalization is only to specify that and put it into words. Um, if a person just goes into the prayer and they know what they're doing and they intend it, they don't have to say anything, the prayer is still valid. Now, you've made wudu, your clothes are clean, your body doesn't have any najasa, your place of prayer is clean, your aura is covered, you're facing the qibla, you intend to pray this follow the prayer, now what do you do? The takbir. So this is the next condition of the prayer. There's a difference of opinion in the Hanafi school. Is it a condition or is it a pillar? Because it seems like it's in the prayer, while others would say it's a condition to initiate the prayer. This, at, at any rate, whether you say it's a condition or a pillar, you have to do the takbirah of, of uh, entering the prayer. And it's called takbiratu at-tahrima. This uh, takbir that is, how do you, you, you know, tahrim is basically what was formerly halal becomes haram. It's like the ihram. When you, why is the ihram garb called ihram? It was because when you put it on, you are entering a uh, state whereby things that used to be halal are haram for you. So things like applying perfume for men, clipping the nails, cutting the hair, uh, hunting, right? The wearing of the ihram makes certain things lawful, unlawful while you're in the ihram. So the takbir to tahrima is the takbir that be, uh, enters you into the state of salat and whereby things that were just halal a second ago are now haram. Eating a sandwich, is that halal or haram? Now, I didn't ask about salat, I just eating a sandwich, eating a, a, a hand-slaughtered hamburger beef patty with cheese this is halal but as soon as you enter the the salah with the takbirah can you pray while eating that cheeseburger no you can't if you do your prayer is invalid so what was just halal a second ago is not halal anymore so this is why we call it that opening takbir that consecrates the the act so that's what you have to do the takbiratu tahrima, uh, the fuqaha in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa and others, they say that this opening takbir, Allahu Akbar, must be uttered with the tongue. It cannot be silent. It cannot mean it can't be silent in the heart, such that you should be able to hear yourself say the takbir. You can say it quietly. But you have to be able to hear yourself. But when the fuqaha say you have to hear yourself, they don't mean you have to hear yourself in a loud room. What they mean is if you in a very quiet space, an environment where there's no external uh, disruptions, no noise, you would hear yourself. So, you know, your house, like really late in the night or when everyone's asleep, or in the basement, it's very quiet. If you silently raised your hands and said, 
Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar. You, you can hear yourself. That's what they mean. So if you only say it in your heart and not on your tongue, you may move your mouth, but you're not saying anything. It's in your heart, but you didn't say it. That doesn't count. It's as if you have not entered the prayer, which means it's not valid. And this applies to everything else too, like the recitation, the, 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 the athkar, the ad'iyah, the things you say. It also must coincide with the intention in the heart without separation with things like talking or eating or anything that is not from the actions related to the salat. There's a little bit of detail here we're going to explain. Because if you don't understand this in a clear way, not you, but a lot of people, if they don't understand this, it's very easy for them to get waswasa. Right? You'll see this. They think, I didn't form my intention, it didn't coincide with the takbir, my prayer isn't valid. You need to understand this, and you don't have waswasa, inshallah. So, Hmm? Before the fard of the prayer? Yes. Yeah, we mentioned that last week. The whole class last week we talked about adhan and iqama. Yeah. So, if you make the intention to pray, it's in your heart, I'm praying dhuha. And then you decide to have a conversation with your spouse or say something to your child or you go and turn off this light. You know, you do some action. And then you come back to the area where you're going to pray. You can't just go Allahu Akbar because the intention was over there and there's been a separation by some other action that's not related to the salat. So you'd have to remake the niyyah just in that moment very quickly and utter the takbir. It has to more or less coincide and not be separated by other things like answering the door, answering the phone, going here, going there, doing this, doing that. However, if there is a separation between the intention and the takbir with something that is related to the prayer, such as dhikr or wudu, then the prayer is valid. This is what they say. This would be the case of a person who, they're, they're about to pray dhuhr, they have the intention, they call the iqama, the intention for dhuhr is there, they have not yet uttered the takbir. And in that moment, they're thinking about something. Maybe they make a dua. Oh Allah, I ask you for this. And then they make the takbir. The intention was here. Then came this dua. And then the takbir. So there was a separation of you know, some moments. But what was between the takbir and the, in, the intention and the takbir was related to the prayer itself. Right? Which is dhikr, dua, um, wudu. Or it could be fixing the garment if the awrah is exposed. I mean, that's related to the prayer. Or if they saw some najasa, you know, they want to quickly get, get rid of it. Like these things are okay. So there are some scenarios, and I, I made a little guide here on the next slide. The point is, you can't have a separation with something worldly and unrelated to prayer. And the intention has to be made before the takbirah. You can't go Allah Akbar and in your heart, oh, I'm praying Dhuhr. No, it has to be in your heart, I'm praying Dhuhr, just fard. It's a current one I'm, I'm doing now for Allah Ta'ala. 
Allahu Akbar. You're not, you're not necessarily saying anything in your heart, words, but you know in your heart what you're doing, and it's clear you're distinguishing it from other prayers. And the takbirah like this should also be uttered while standing before bending in the rukur. Now, okay, think about it when the imam is in the rukur and you've entered the masjid. He's in the rukur. What do you hear? If you're, if you're, you're on time, so you're in rukur behind the imam. Someone comes in, you hear their car keys, everything's jangling because they're trying to get there. They want to get there before the imam raises from rukur. Because if you catch the rukur, you've caught the rak'ah. So if you're that person and you're trying to get there and you go join the prayer while the imam is in the rukur, you're, you mean to make the, the intention and takbir while standing before you go into rukur. If you go into the rukur and then say Allahu Akbar, mm -mm. you have to do that while standing and then go into rukur and, and catch the, the rukur of the imam. So there are a couple of scenarios here and I want to clarify them. We have them here in this slide. Basically, the, the quick and easy guide for determining what's valid from invalid. So let's say you have the intention and the takbirah coinciding. So you intend in your heart that you're praying dhuhr, you raise your hands, Allahu Akbar. They coincide. That prayer is valid. Okay? So let's say in scenario two, the person makes an intention to pray dhuhr, but there's a small gap between their formulation of the intention and the takbir. And in between them, there's something they were doing unrelated to prayer, like eating or drinking. And then they utter the takbir. Is that valid? Is it? No, it's not valid. Because the action in between the two is not related to salat. In the next scenario, there is a gap, but the person is engaged in something that is related to the prayer, such as dhikr and or wudu. That prayer is valid even though there's a bit of a gap between the intention and the takbirah. Um, the third scenario is when a person utters the takbirah, Allahu Akbar, and then they form their intention, I'm praying dhuhr. Valid or invalid? Invalid. Because the, the intention has to precede the takbirah. They're coinciding, you know, but the intention is first. Don't think of it like time. You're like, oh, the intention and the takbir, they're all, is it here or here? That's waswasa territory. It's just takbirah and the intention, they're basically coming together. But the intention is first. If you didn't have the intention, you know, what, what exactly are you doing? Why are you standing there? Why are you facing the qibla? Right? It's, it's, it's actually hard not to have the intention. Okay, in the fourth scenario, a person comes to the congregation as the imam is in ruku'ah, Go straight into rukur and then utters the takbirah. Yeah, it's not valid. You need to make the, the intention and takbirah while standing and then make the rukur. It's very brief. Uh, these are the details that we learn in our fardain, in the books of fiqh. But the reality for, I can't give an exact number, but I would say 99% of people, 
the reality is these are not things you even have to worry about or think about because most people know when it's Dhuhr time that they're praying Dhuhr. It's distinguished from Asr. They know it's not an open-ended, unnamed prayer, unspecified prayer. And it tends to be there in the heart and present with them as they're raising their hands as they enter the prayer. That describes most people. However, fiqh is not describing the ideal situation. It describes the ideal as well as things that are less than ideal so we can see where we are because things happen. Okay, So that's more or less what we need to say about the takbira. There's a few other details related to it, but in the miscellanea, we have to clarify some things about praying behind the imam. Uh, it, there are certain issues that imams across the world always complain about. You ask any imam in any masjid, in any corner of the earth, the one thing they complain about and speak about, but many people never listen to. It is people praying behind the imam and doing things before he does. And, and in some cases it's extreme. The imam is going into sajda saying Allahu Akbar and a person already, already has their head planted in the ground before the imam has his. Right? And then sometimes it's a more subtle. So the fuqaha say if one is praying behind an imam if the person praying behind the imam utters the takbir along with the imam and finishes his takbir before the imam finishes his takbir, he hasn't entered the prayer properly because he's initiated the takbir entering into the salat before the imam has. Because the opening takbir is not Allahu Ak, it's Allahu Akbar. So when the imam says Allahu Akbar, the prayer has entered. If, so you, you can imagine this person is, the imam is raising his hands, he's behind the imam, the imam is saying Allahu Akbar, he says Allahu Akbar, but he says it faster than the imam, Allahu Akbar. He enters, and the imam is still saying Bar. You see that gap? So who has initiated the prayer first, the imam or the ma'mum? You can't even call him ma'mum anymore, he's not even praying behind the imam properly. But yeah, the person behind him. So basically, the golden rule, wait for the imam to finish. He goes, Allahu Akbar, and then you enter. There's no racing. So that's one point. Um, the preferred way uh, of the opening takbir in the Hanafi school is to raise the hands up to the level of the ears, where the thumbs are near the earlobes. I know you've seen this because we have a diversity where there are some people who raise their hands like this and others who raise it to the shoulder level. You've seen that, right? You've seen both. Both of these are valid. Both of these come from uh, hadith from the Prophet ﷺ. Both of these were from the practice of the Sahaba, alayhim. They're acceptable. However, in some of the legal schools, they prefer one way over another because of the strength of the transmission or the number of people practicing it uh, and so on. So in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa, the preferred way of doing the takbir is to raise the hands to the ear level where the thumbs are around the earlobe. It doesn't have to be so exact, but basically in this, in this area. 
It's also valid to raise them up to the level of the shoulders. Uh, one hadith mentions that the hands of the Prophet ﷺ, when raising them for the takbir, were neither splayed widely nor tightly pressed together. It was just natural. So, Allahu Akbar, like this. So this is the preferred way in the Hanafi school, or this way. There's another way that is, it, it doesn't invalidate the prayer if a person does it. However, it is disliked. And that is the partial raising of the hands. This is the lazy way. And how many times have you seen it or done it yourself where you come and you stand? You see this? Where's this? This thing. That's not up here and it's not up here. So this, this whole quick thing, this partial thing, that, that's makru. It should be either here or up here. So you take your time and do it properly. This is dislike to raise it in this uh, half-hearted way. This is for men and women. Uh, we will talk about the postures of the prayer and how they are different between men and women and why. And uh, we'll look at the reasonings for that as well as we'll, I'll actually bring you the nusus from, from the hadith which show that this position is not taken out of Imam Abu Hanifa's hat. It was actually from the salaf of the ummah. It was a position held by sahaba and there's reasonings for that. So we'll look at that. But for this issue, everything so far is applied equally between men and women. It's all the same here. All right. So that's, that's everything for the conditions of the salat. Notice we said conditions are those things that are external to the prayer. While the takbirah seems like it's inside of the prayer, in the Hanafi school, it's kind of 50-50. Some of them say it is a, a condition. Others say it's a pillar. It's really, it's a legal debate. It's not really of much concern for us. The point is you have to do the takbirah, you know, uh, saying Allahu Akbar in this manner. Uh, before we go into the, the, the pillars of the prayer, are there any questions about what we've covered so far? Yeah, so when we, the, the way the fuqaha teach the prayer is very methodical. They arrange each area of discussion in, in a particular way, and they have a wisdom for that. And what you're asking about pertains to the area, the, the area of discussion for what invalidates the prayer they usually put that at the very end. So first they describe the conditions external to the prayer, and then they describe the pillars in of the prayer itself, and then they add sunnas and adab, so everything that makes the prayer what it is properly. And then after that, they talk about the things that would spoil it. So yes, excess movement would spoil the prayer. This is agreed upon between the schools. Uh, there's differences about the extent of or what counts as excess movement but we'll be getting to that in a couple of weeks inshallah I have a question. if you're on a 
Yeah, so you have a challenge here. So the, the challenge of praying in the plane is twofold. The facing of the Qibla, uh, which is the easier of the two, uh, and then praying while standing. So in the Hanafi school, you need to be standing, right? Uh, if you cannot stand, well, you can either pray in the plane sitting down and make up their prayer when you land, uh, or if you're, depending on the airline, you could get a space somewhere and pray standing. Uh, if you're not able to, you do as much as you can, which in this case would be, you, could, you, you pray sitting and try to make it up. Yeah, if it's right behind you, there's not much you can do. Yeah. So I, my practice is always to just pray those prayers over again on, on land. Just bara'atan lidhimma, just to... Is that a situation where you would pray before? Or before. Oh, I mean, if you're traveling, then... Well, in the Hanafi school, it's a little different. But if you're traveling, you do have the option and the other schools of joining Dhuhr and Asr and shortening them if you've covered a certain distance. Uh, and that is to facilitate travel. Uh, what I'm saying is that if you're in a plane and you cannot face the Qibla, or worse, you, you can't even stand because there's no space, uh, you could pray sitting down and not even facing the Qibla just due to the sacredness of the time and you're unable to do it. But you should pray that uh, again when you've landed just to clear that because you've missed the conditions. So, uh, you know, and some scholars are more lenient about this issue than others. But I always like to make sure that I've prayed them on land. It just feels better that way. You, you clear your conscience and move on. Yeah, we're going to get to that. Yeah, we're going to get to that, inshallah, in this section. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think I think this is the the, the Ibaldis do this. I think I, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, just some isolated sects. The, really small groups. I think a couple of them, they didn't do it. Uh, if they don't raise the hands, but they utter the takbir, the prayer is still valid. The raising of the hands itself, is not itself a condition or, or a pillar. It, it marks the beginning of the salat, but the movement itself is not the condition. It is saying Allahu Akbar and entering the prayer. That's the condition. Make tayammum. They they still pray in their state, yeah. The prayer is not lifted. That's the thing you have to realize. Even if a person was a paraplegic and unable to make wudu or tayammum or face the qibla, even if they couldn't move their body, all they can do is move their eyelids. Even then, they use their eyelids for prayer. And if their eyelids couldn't move, they make the intention that they're in a standing, bowing, and sajda, and say the du'as for each position, even though they're still. So even in that case, they're still praying. And this is one of those 
basic things of Islam, but a lot of people don't know it. You'll find a lot of people, if they get sick and go to the hospital, they just stop praying. It's as if, oh, salah is now lifted from me until I get better. No, if, if salat is required even in the heat of battle, what about a person who is just lying in bed? Allah Ta'ala revealed verses describing salatul khawf, the prayer of fear, which is how you establish your fault of prayer if you're in the heat of battle. It's described in the Quran. And it's something that none of us have ever seen in, in real life. If you see it, it would seem very strange. Where one group is praying one rak'ah, the other group is armed, and then they switch. One is defending and fighting while they're praying one rak'ah, and then back and forth until each group has prayed the rak'ahs of that prayer. That's Salatul Khawf. So if Salat is not lifted in a state of war, in the heat of battle, what about a person lying in their hospital bed? So you do whatever you can, regardless of the impediments. Okay, any other questions before we move on? Then you break the prayer and restart. Yeah, so the question is if you start the prayer and while inside of the prayer you realize that you made the intention for the wrong prayer. So let's say you're it's asr, but you made the takbir with niya of dhuhr. Like that that kind of scenario. Yeah, so you're in salah and you you realize oh, it's actually asr. What do you do? Well, you, your prayer is invalid already, so you just start over. Allahu Akbar. You just don't want to be uh, a victim of waswasa. Like you'll see some people, maybe you've encountered them. They try to, they get these satanic whisperings, thinking that the niya that they're articulating in the heart has to be perfectly timed with the raising of the hands in the first ah of Allahu Akbar. And if it doesn't, if they don't match perfectly, they'll start over again. And this is a phenomena that has existed for a very long time among some people. The person who succumbs to the whisperings of shaitan, they have misgivings. And they need to go to a fiqh teacher who can tell them what to do so they don't have the waswasa. Uh, I, I remember one person, on more than one occasion, while, while, while studying, uh, they would end up on my right or my left in jama'ah. And this person, every single prayer, they would go, they would pause, Allahu Akbar. <laughs> they look frustrated, Allahu Akbar. Then they stop again. Mm. Allahu Akbar. And this is happening seven, eight, nine times. But I noticed something the third or fourth time this happened is that this person keeps repeating the takbir over and over again because of waswasa. But whenever the imam went into rukur, he had no problem going Allahu Akbar and then going into rukur. There's never a problem after that. 
And one of the early imams, they mentions they mentioned this by saying that you see the person affected by waswasa, it's usually in the qiyam while standing, but if they're going to risk missing that rak'ah, so easily they get the intention and they go into salah and they catch the rukur. No problem. And this tells you that it's waswasa, right? So we don't want to be like that. So don't overthink it, you know. Just, you know what you're praying. You say takbir, you enter the prayer. If you realize, as, as you mentioned, oh, I, I made the intention for the wrong prayer, no problem. Just start over again. But don't overthink it, you know. You don't want to become subject to waswasa. Khair, inshallah. Um, yes, unlikely you're going to finish these slides tonight. It's okay. Uh, the pillars of the salat. Again, what is the distinction between a shart and a rukn? A, a condition and a pillar. We said the condition is external to the salat. So, tahara is a shart, it's a condition. It's external to the salat. Facing the qibla is external. Covering the aura is external. Intention is external because you formulate it before you enter the prayer. And the takbira, this is where you have some differences, but even if you say that's... Uh, a pillar, you have an argument. The pillar is what is inside of the prayer itself. So, the conditions and the pillars are obligatory. They're fard. So if either one of these is omitted, the prayer is invalid. And the condition is outside of the salat, the pillar is inside of the salat. What are the condition, the pillars? There are six. Or five, depending on the view of the takbir to tahrima, whether or not it's a condition or a pillar. Um, the takbir to tahrima, according to Imam Muhammad bin Hassan al-Shaybani, it is a pillar. According to Imam Abu Hanifa and Abu Yusuf, it's a shart. So this is kind of a back and forth within the school. The second pillar of the salat is qiyam, standing for the one who is able, except for the voluntary prayers. Now for each of these there's detail and we'll get through as many of them as we can tonight and if we don't have time we'll go through them next week. The next pillar is recitation of the Quran even if only one verse in any two rak'ahs of the obligatory prayer. I know you're thinking what about the Fatiha? Don't worry that's coming. We're talking about the bare minimums, the bare bones and in all rak'ahs of witr and voluntary prayers unless one is praying behind an imam since there is no recitation for one behind an imam and this is the Hanafi school the fourth pillar is bowing ruku' the sixth one is sajda prostration which is with one's forehead both hands both knees and the bottom of the toes of both feet and lastly the final sitting for at least the length of the tashahud. Now we got to talk about each of these in a little bit of detail. We've talked about the first one, so we're not going to repeat that. We, we just finished talking about that. We'll go through the others, starting with standing, qiyam. They say standing is a pillar for the one who is able, except for the voluntary prayers. If the person is able to stand, they have to stand. If they're incapable of standing, they can sit. 
but the obligation remains for anyone who's able. If you're unable, or it's very difficult or painful, you can pray sitting, but with the normal bowing and prostration. What that means is if your problem in salat, your physical limitations are only when standing and not in other positions, then you can sit in the chair. But for the other parts of the prayer, you need to go into those actual positions. Just because, and I struggle to think of a scenario where that would happen. Um, let's imagine there's one, the person can't stand. Maybe they have, you know, their foot is really hurting. There's a broken bone or something. They can't stand. They can sit in the chair or they can sit on the floor. If they are capable of going into rukur, they shouldn't remain in the chair. They should go into the rukur and also go into this actual sajda. Now, I imagine if the person's foot is hurting, going into rukur is going to hurt too because they're semi-standing. Uh, but anyhow, you understand what this means. It means that if the pain is only limited to standing, you sit. That doesn't mean you sit for the rest of the prayer in every single posture. If one is able to stand, but they can't make sajda, they pray with the head movement, right? So the inhina, this, this moving of the head, they would say that the rukur is at a certain degree and then in sajda it's further down. You make this movement and that is recommended to do so while sitting, but you could do that standing as well. So this would be a person who for whatever reason can't make sajda. I have a really good example. Have you ever had one of those flus? Usually it's at the tail end where you get this throbbing headache. Some people get really bad headaches with flus to the point that rukur is incredibly painful and sajda is so painful because of the pressure. If that is to the point where they feel like they're gonna pass out, theoretically they could stand and then just make the movements for rukur and sajda so that it limits that pressure. Right, this is a case-by-case -case basis, but those are the basic guidelines. You can pray your voluntary prayers while sitting, although doing so without an excuse entails half the reward. So you'll sometimes see elders, see it often. They will pray the fard behind the imam fully, not sitting in a chair. And then when they're praying their sunnahs, they're praying on, on the ground. Because you know, it is tiresome for people especially uh, those who reach a certain age or if they have a condition. If they have an excuse, this is fine. Uh, doing it without an excuse, you could just say, you know, hey, I've had a long day at work, I'm tired. I want to pray these sunnahs sitting down. You could do that, but you get half the reward because you're missing out the qiyam. But if you have an excuse, you get the full reward because Allah knows if you didn't have that excuse, you would be standing. So you're rewarded as if you were standing. Now the exception for voluntary prayers is the sunnah prayer before fajr. The sunnah prayers, the two rak'ahs before fajr have to be done standing because they are the uh, most strongly emphasized of the sunnah prayers. This is in the Hanafi school. So they're saying you have to stand for the fard, of course. You stand for the wajib, the witr. And the sunnah prayers, you could sit down and pray them if you wanted, even without an excuse. But you can't for the sunnahs of fajr, because it's so strongly emphasized, it should be in standing.
the next one, we may stop with this one, of the pillars of prayer is Qira'atul Qur'an, recitation of the Qur'an, even if it's a single verse in any two rak'ahs of the obligatory prayer. This means that the bare minimum of, of, of the prayer has to have the pillar of reading Qur'an, even if it's a single verse. But they add that that single verse has to have at least two words. You can't just say, bait, right? Taken from a verse of Qur'an. It has to be at least two words, like, ثُمَّ to fulfill this pillar. And it should be done standing, because that's where you do the recitation. And you have to be able to hear yourself, as we said, when a person is in a quiet environment, they could hear themselves. It's not just in their heart. Unless you're praying behind an imam. If you're praying behind the imam, you, what do you recite? Nothing at all. And this is in the school of Imam Abu Hanifa. And I'm going to explore this more in next week when we get into the issue of reading Al-Fatiha. Because, you know, the, 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 the Muslim... North American fiqh, if you can call it that, is really a hodgepodge. It's a hodgepodge. It's, you know, it's, it's a person who, they learned all their, their basic fiqh as a child in Pakistan, but they're doing this and that from different schools, and, and you're not, I'm, not, I'm not condemning it either. It is what it is. But if you learn from a single school and then build from there, you have clarity about what you're doing. In the Hanafi school, when you enter the prayer behind an imam, you, op you, you say the, uh, the opening takbir and the opening dua, but you are silent when the imam is reciting. And when he is in qiyam in the silent rak'ahs, even then you're not reciting. Because his qira'ah in the hadith, his qira'ah is your qira'ah, and in the Hanafi school, that is whether it's a, um, an audible recitation or a silent recitation in the Salat. This means that for Dhuhr, all four rak'ahs, the Imam is reciting Al-Fatiha, and his silent recitation of Al-Fatiha counts as yours. So you're actually quiet. So that's the answer to it. And we'll explore that in more detail. So what we're saying here is for the person praying by themselves. In the Hanafi school, if a person was to recite the Fatiha behind the Imam silently to themselves, in the Hanafi school, this is makru tahrimi. It's prohibitively disliked. Why? Because then we need to explore this next week. You know, why do the Imams differ about this issue? Because Imam Shafi'i and his school say the one praying behind the Imam has to recite the Fatiha even in the rak'ahs where the imam recites out loud. You recite after the imam is done, silently to yourself. So why do they differ? And why is Imam Abu Hanifa in his school saying no recitation at all behind the imam? And the others are saying there is. It all goes back to how they understand certain hadith and whether one is qualifying another or restricting it or whether you uh, keep the general one and consider the, this other one an exception or, you know, it's an usuli discussion. So in the Hanafi school, the, the basis is that the qira'ah of the imam is your qira'ah. 
And the other schools say, yes, that's true. For the audible recitations, but you still have to read the Fatiha because there's other hadith which say there's no salat for the one who doesn't read the Fatiha. So they're trying to reconcile. You know, both, all the schools are trying to reconcile various proof texts. And this is why we talked about how this all works in module two. Why there are differences, why there's variations, and these things are all acceptable. You just try your best. So I would say to you, because I'm not a Hanafi, even though we're going over Hanafi fiqh, if you want to learn the Hanafi school and take that as your structure and build on that structure, then you should follow it consistently. And as you learn and grow, if you decide that you want to learn the structure of another school for consistency, you can do that. We'll have a class soon on that too. But if you're doing that, be consistent. So you wouldn't be reciting the Fatiha or anything else behind the Imam, whether he's reciting it out loud or in a silent rakah, just to be consistent. Uh, so we're actually over the time. We have a couple more pillars to cover. So we're going to cover those next week. We'll review all of these. We'll review the conditions and then the pillars we covered. Finish the pillars and then go into the next section, inshallah. Wallahu rasulu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.